Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. We have a wonderful guest here today for Spirit in Action. Nelia Sargent is a lifelong peace and justice activist with deep intergenerational roots. Situated in New England, Nelia has decades of experience as a nonviolence activist and teacher, skills she honed as part of the anti-nuclear movement called the Clamshell Alliance. A devotee of Gene Sharp and his profound treatment of the many varieties of nonviolent methods and tactics, she also, late in life, decided to get a law degree, though not wishing to practice as a lawyer. Add to all this that she became blind at 20 and proceeded to embrace voluntary simplicity by, among other things, giving away a sizable inheritance and living in the Quaker City Land Trust in Unity, New Hampshire, from which Nelia Sargent joins us now by phone. Nelia, I'm really excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I'm looking very much forward to exploring the roots and fruits in our collective human spiritual journey. And there's so much to explore. I've had conversations with you over the last week that have opened up all these vistas in which you've been involved. Let's start out, though, by noting the fact that at age 20, you became blind. So you were fully sighted growing up, and then at 20, were you activist before you became blind, or was that mainly something that happened after you became blind? Yes, I was very much an activist prior to becoming blind. However, the loss of vision clarified my values. At age 20, I had to figure out what was important to me. The loss of my father, my beloved father, the loss of a four-year wonderful relationship, which was mutual parting for mutually agreeable terms. We needed to explore who we were independently of each other, but I think many family friends thought we'd get married. And the loss of my vision really focused me on what did I really care about. And nonviolent action was what I wanted to learn. So you mentioned growing up inspired, I think, by your family. I've heard you say that before when we were speaking. Could you talk a little bit about your upbringing, the thing that led you to this nonviolent training, the justice simplicity, your work with Gene Sharp, all of those things? What's your family background that led up to that? I am a third-generation pacifist on non-religious grounds, actually. My grandfather was an outspoken opponent of World War II, although he was not of draftable age at that point. My father was a conscientious objector for non-religious reasons who did 
alternative service in the New Hampshire Forest Service and then was a guinea pig for dietary experiments in New York City to equal the hardship of men sent overseas. <laughs> they took him out of the Forest Service where he was very content. And I grew up in an extended pacifist household. My family's house was the Boston branch of the Committee for Nonviolent Action. And so we had a very diverse household that was from the get-go openly shared. It was almost never, ever just five sergeants. I have two younger sisters, but it was openly shared with many people from all walks of life, literally all classes. We had professional thieves and robbers who were part of our extended family. They never stole from us because we were family and my parents could go pretty much anywhere in the combat zone (laughs) as nobody messed with Ricky Allen. We had international visitors with the highest priority for the Japanese because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombing. And I actually lived in Japan. I turned 11 in Japan, lived briefly in Japan. We had international students, and we had people underground during the Vietnam War traveling en route to Canada. So you're referring to these people living in your household or your house or on your land? Where were you living at the time? This was a house that my grandfather purchased for his work. He was trained as a scientist at Harvard and then quit after 10 years behind a microscope. He started a travel school partly to pursue my grandmother because he was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth and couldn't afford to chase her as her parents were sending her off on steamship hoping that she would forget this, the love of her life. <laughs> they, <didn't. laughs> uh, they eventually eloped in Rome under the threat of being disowned by her parents. And it was a very courageous act on her part. He was eventually much accepted. So he had purchased this house in Brookline, Massachusetts, where he had staff, and it was also his residence, and he did a great deal of formal dinners and entertaining. And so this was the house that became, along with the carriage house, the barn, was the Boston branch of the Community for Nonviolent Action in the 1960s. My parents were part of the band, the bomb movement, in the 1950s, and then the students caught on in about 1964 in the anti-Vietnam War era. So I, I grew up really at the heart of much of the active resistance in Boston to the Vietnam War. Forty years later in law school, one of the cases we were assigned as the showcase on draft card burning, U.S. v. O'Brien. Dave O'Brien, I remember very clearly as a grade-A MIT student who always had a twinkle in his eye, and he was great with me as an 11-year-old. He had a wonderful sense of humor. He burned his draft card in the steps of the South Boston Courthouse with three friends, and they immediately turned themselves in. And I'll never forget his winning at the appellate level. At the height of the Vietnam War era, I was living with this national hero who'd won his appellate level case for draft card burning. Wow. The very first time that the Selective Service violated a church sanctuary to come call out a draft resistor was at the Arlington Street Church in Boston, Massachusetts. And Robert Talmanson, who was known as Tally, was released from prison to my parents' household, and so he lived with us immediately after his release from jail. We often had people coming straight from jail. My parents were not part of the probationary system, but being a Beacon Hill publisher, I guess it was a more acceptable venue for the prison system. So sometimes we served as a home for people who were just coming out of prison. Let me also mention that the way we got in touch with one another is because you are a listener. You're right on that cusp between Vermont and New Hampshire, where W-O-O-L, and hello everybody, and W-O-O-L, Black Sheep Radio, Bellows Falls, Vermont, which is one of the places where this program is broadcast. You heard me over the radio, I guess, years ago, and uh, I saw a comment. How long have you been listening W-O-O-L? 
and how many people should be listening to WOOL? <laughs> WOOL is a wonderful community low-power resource, and I've only been listening for perhaps the last five years because I am partly Luddite, and I didn't know they didn't have a strong enough transmitter. To I'm probably 30 miles, maybe 20 or 30 miles away, and so until fairly recently, they didn't. They've been in existence for 20 years, but their low power transmitter didn't reach me until recently, and I didn't have the technical ability to pursue internet research over my speech adaptive equipment until, oh, I'd say in the last five years, I've been actively pursuing internet alternative media all over the country and all over the world. And so you found out about them sometime maybe five years ago, or that's when you actually hooked up. Did they up their power? They did. About five years ago, I think they increased the transmitter power strength, and so that at least on good days, they come in quite clearly. At least on the second floor and the first floor, they don't always, I can't always get them in with the same radio. (laughs) Well, I hope that those good days are the days when spirit and action is being broadcast. Yes, well, I I go to now, I go to the computer and internet access quite easily and quite fluently. The other thing I think people should know about you is that you're a hardened criminal. You've been arrested at least a couple times, I think, and, and for all I know, you could have been 20 times. Could you mention a little bit about your criminal record? I had to document all of it in my applications to law school, and I thought it might keep me out, but it turned out to be a tremendous asset 35 years later. It's now a sign of integrity and instant credibility in New Hampshire to have been the founding member of the active with the beginning of the Clamshell Alliance, opposing the Seabrook Nuclear Power Station, which basically took a non-issue in the mid-70s and turned it into the center of the national energy debate in only four years. That's, I believe, unprecedented in U.S. peace history that a non-issue would become the center of the national debate in only four years. In 1974, Nixon had pledged that there would be a 1,000 new nuclear power stations online by the year 2000. We started the Clamshell Alliance in 1976, As a last resort, we went to civil disobedience. There had been many other forms of opposition that went nowhere, and so we started the Clamshell Alliance in 76, and by 1980, every presidential candidate, nuclear power was one of the three kingpin issues that every candidate had to take a stance on publicly. And shortly after that, the 1982 was the nuclear weapons freeze, which swept the country And for younger listeners who might not remember that time period, it was pretty astonishing how the Union of Concerned Scientists, Physicians for Social Responsibility, many very credible organizations had moved this, the League of Women Voters, many organizations had moved the nuclear weapons three minutes to midnight, the risk of nuclear winter and nuclear suicide, that there is basically no further nuclear weapons is the ultimate sanction in violent conflict doesn't work. It's extinguishing life as we know it. And this was something that was really a mainstream part of consciousness, not just on the East Coast. This went way beyond New England and was really a part of the country's psyche. And so you got involved in this. Again, 1976 is kind of when things started out for you in terms of opposing Seabrook, its Clamshell Alliance. But that's also about the time that you went blind. 
how did those two events overlap? I mean, were you blind actually when you started getting involved in anti-nuclear activism? Where did one happen with respect to the other? Let's see. As a senior in high school, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, which is like freckles on our nose except on our retina that block the light from entering. The eye, the optical nerve, and the brain are all intact. It's just that the light isn't reaching my brain to transmit images. I spent the first year after high school knowing that I might someday become blind out in the British Columbian Canadian Rockies, building log cabins and skidding logs by mule. I wanted to enjoy the beauty of nature, which was a very powerful force throughout my childhood with whatever vision I had left, and I figured somehow academics would be there later in libraries, but I'd figure that all out later. And in 1975, when my father died, quite unexpectedly at age 60, through an accident, I was volunteering with the American Friends Service Committee and working on a B-1 bomber campaign television program in Cambridge with a group of six of us, and that January, I started training at the Carroll Center. I was quite surprised to find out I was legally blind, which includes a lot of vision. I was missing 30% of my peripheral vision. I was quite surprised to find out I was legally blind because I could see so much still. The same month that my father died, actually. It was 76 that I started the Carroll Center Rehabilitation Training for the Blind, which is just an extraordinary training that I went through. Six of the seven functions of vision are replaceable by our own innate perceptual resources. I worked with Robert Amendola in his late 70s, who had pioneered this field, which is absolutely extraordinary. That is a separate thread. I really believe that anyone who's blind can function with the grace and the independence that I have been granted. All of us who are trained by him are considered these superhuman, extraordinary blind people. And this is what every blind person should be given access to. A month after finishing learning how to use a white cane, the training was so good. And please do not misunderstand me. I'm not bragging here. This is what any blind person who's willing and given access to these tools could achieve. I was given the skills to walk from Boston to Washington independently with my white cane on the Bicentennial Walk for Disarmament and Social Justice in 1976. During that rehab training at the Carroll Center in Newton, Mass., I was still volunteering with the American Friends Service Committee and hearing about the beginnings of Clamshell that spring. There was a covered wagon that came across the state. It was a wonderful puppet show. And in July, the name Clamshell Alliance was chosen. Through the American Friends Service Committee, I was hearing about these meetings C.T. Rice was traveling up to the New Hampshire seacoast for these meetings, and thus I knew about the August 1st action and was actually very busy planning for the beginning of the Continental Walk. The Boston branch left on Hiroshima Day, August 6th. So I actually missed the very first clamshell action, walking down the railroad tracks, 18 people holding young saplings, trying to replant the saplings to reclaim this beautiful estuary and a sacred Native American burial ground that had been excavated to build the nuke. August 22nd, I was there at Seabrook Second Rally, where 180 people came. And then that spring, 2,000 of us were on site, and a year later, it was 20,000 on site. Wow. The way that mushroom is just so impressive. I understand, though, that in the early rallies, you know, you're willing to put yourself on the line, get arrested, but some people were doubtful that a blind woman could do this. 
To begin with, yes, I, I did actually, it's sort of a tangent, but I actually did ask to be part of the original group. I would have been the 19th person. I hadn't actually met the people yet up in New Hampshire. I was hearing about these exciting stories from Suki Rice in the American Friends Service Committee offices where I was a volunteer. I think the group was understandably, and I'd love to tease them now. <laughs> um, I could have been the 19th person. They were understandably, and I don't hold it against them, they were understandably reluctant to bring a person they hadn't met who just barely finished learning how to use a white cane into a situation where they knew that there was no experience or rapport or relationship with these relatively rural police who had no experience with protesters down these rugged railroad tracks with many broken ties and missing ties. They were understandably reluctant, but it wasn't too long before I was very involved with Clamshell and eventually was hired as the nonviolence training coordinator for the New England region. Clamshell was limited to a New England organization. I was one of the five people on staff later on with primary responsibility for nonviolence training, paralegal work, and public speakers bureau coordinator. You know, in talking with you, Nelia, I'm so tempted to go down multiple avenues at once. There's so much. I want to come back and talk about nonviolence training in just a moment. But first, I want to, again, review your rap sheet. So in the very early stages with Clamshell Alliance and such, you went through arrest, civil disobedience, that kind of thing then. In 2011, for instance, you were arrested, something from July 5th of that year, 15 women, the largest ever contingent of the shut-it-down affinity group to date, were arrested Thursday afternoon at the Energy Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant and charged with trespass after advocating for replacing nuclear power with solar power. You miscreant. Wow. That's at least 30 years or more after your other arrests. If we looked at your rap sheet, how many arrests would we see? Do you know? Have you lost I honestly count? don't know how many times I've been arrested. I think I counted, I don't know, over a dozen arrests. But some of the states, I had to write away to states to get my entire history before law school applications. And some of the states had actually lost my records. I know that I was arrested in some states where they had no record of it. And I've always given my proper name and so forth. And sometimes I've actually been sentenced on contempt of court a number of times. As a non-cooperator, there are times when this does not go over well within the legal system. Oh, really? (laughs) Grounded in principles, there are times when I have not chosen to cooperate with individuals whom I extend the deepest and utmost genuine respect to as a human being. And I'm always doing my utmost to try to connect with the humanity of every person I'm interacting with. At the same time that I am being outgoing and warm, I will not in any way cooperate with their authority. For instance, the day that Three Mile Island, which is the worst nuclear accident in U.S. history, obviously far less than the five Fukushima reactors that are in trouble at this point, five of the six, three in serious trouble with a fourth wavering. (laughs) But Three Mile Island was the most severe nuclear accident in the United States, which happened on March 28, 1978. I was on trial that day for having blockaded the reactor pressure vessel, the housing for the fuel rods at Seabrook, the heart of the monster, if you will. And 
showed up in court that day. I'd been, I was hitchhiking about two hours across New Hampshire, two hours driving time, down to court that morning. And all my rides were saying, had you heard the news? Have you heard the news? And we were picking up snippets, which became less and less as the, as the accident progressed. They let out, the media allowed for quite a bit of information initially, and then that was basically blacked out, saying there was no problem and there was no hazard to the public. When I got to court, I asked some of my colleagues who were supporting staff people from Clamshell about what was happening, and they said, we don't know, but it's very, very serious, and obviously there's a media blackout. That day, the judge was fit to be tied. He had sentenced about 2,000 Clamshell people to different varying levels of jail time, including some of his good friends, sons and daughters, in Seacoast, New Hampshire. And Judge Casasa actually sentenced us all on contempt of court that day, regardless of what we did or did not say, and resigned from the bench about, I think it was only about a month later that he resigned from the bench permanently. He, he still continues to practice law in New Hampshire, but he's no longer serving as a judge. Huh. And contempt was for what reason? I was not standing for the judge, and... We were not allowed to present any meaningful defense, and so actually it led some of my colleagues, two of my colleagues, to jump into court in kangaroo suits to hop in, different courts, different days. Um, <laughs> and actually Justice Billings, one of the people who hopped into court in a kangaroo suit, Justice Billings, which is an aristocratic name in Vermont history, there's a Billings Farm Museum, Billings Dairy, Justice Billings said it all for us in his defense, which I was assigned 40 years later in law school. Justice Billings stated, here these defendants have a legitimate cause of action, proof of their elements, they're offering top-level national expert witnesses, and they're being denied due process and the right to be heard because of a legislative policy approving of nuclear power. So that's actually a very reputable person speaking on your behalf. Of course, hindsight gets better and better frequently, or can be if we don't suppress history. Yes. Do you feel like the history of the clamshell evolution, the opposition to nuclear, that that's been written accurately in our books yet? There's a tremendous room for further research and scholarly study. I think Gene Sharp documented 198 methods of nonviolent action, and he's the first to say, this is not a complete list, please continue to add to this list. We utilized many of those 198 methods within Clamshell, and I think it was the diversity of our resistance and our constructive program, the, the two parallel tracks that Gandhi spoke of, non-cooperation with constructive program, active nonviolence or truth force with the constructive program. What Barbara Deming would state would be the two hands, the one uplifting and the other opposing. It was the two tracks and the diversity and the strength. We, at the height of Clamshell, we had 96 autonomous local groups, most of them meeting weekly, and we came together every week or two in coordinating committee to plan further actions. And my favorite part of coordinating committee was always listening to the reports from those 96 local groups, which we didn't have 96 representatives. We were clustered into regions. But the reports from what the local groups were doing was, to me, always the most exciting and really inspiring, where there was tremendous cross-pollination and inspiration that traveled around the room. So, no, I think 
while clamshell members are trying at this point to do a good job of catching our raw, the raw footage of our memories, because we're all now, I was one of the younger members, not the youngest at age 20, but one of the younger members. I'm now 60. So we're doing our best to capture the footage for further ongoing archival research and study to explore how we took a non-issue and became a national centerpiece, even amongst presidential electoral politics within only four years. There's tremendous room for further study and research there for young students coming up in this field. Well, it is a very impressive history. I want to mention, Nelia, that something that might surprise you. I've had a guest on who she's in favor of development of nuclear resources and on spirit and action i try and have on guests who are trying to do good things for the world and she has good reasons for what she advocates and part of it is because her primary concern environmentally is global warming she actually came to her pro-nuclear opinion because she was trying to scientifically document her opposition to nuclear power. So it's kind of interesting. You might want to tune in and listen to that interview. It'll be pretty interesting for you. But in any case, I strongly respect the people who are looking at the issues and attempting to make government match our values and our preferences. And obviously, that that doesn't happen. If you go to Beyond Nuclear's website, beyondnuclear.org, there's a very good fact sheet on how nuclear power contributes to climate change and climate destruction. And if you look at the entire fuel cycle, it is a net contributor to greenhouse gassing. So folks, beyondnuclear.org is one more resource. Yes, and obviously there's still no answer to the waste question, which lasts forever. The half-life of plutonium is 250,000 years, I believe. I'm a little rusty on some of my facts, (laughs) but I used to, I'm a little rusty on some of these facts. It's good to listen to my interview because she very carefully documents, answers those questions because I certainly have the same concerns. Mm -hmm. And so it's worth listening to because she is definitely on the same side. She is, by the way, a a Quaker and her view is not popular amongst Quakers, I would say. There's, I would say, the large majority of Quakers and activists in general would be opposed to nuclear power. But she's doing this as an attempt at truth-seeking as opposed to, shall we say, mob mentality. Mm-hmm. But I want, I want to get back to what happened with Clamshell and your activity in there. Again, 20, you've just gone blind. You're getting involved in Clamshell. You're one of the younger members involved in this. And that's when I think you got involved with nonviolent action. Could you talk about how that unfolded in your life? and what nonviolent action means to you. Yes. Nonviolent action for me is a bridge to many, many, many different disparate issues. It bridges many different causes that I've been involved in, but through the methods, the tactics, and the strategies of nonviolent action, it's led me through many unusual doors and actually has opened doors within my own spiritual journey. I started with convictions being raised in an extended pacifist household and then being drawn because of my understanding of the lessons of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the genetic mutations through radiation that I understood well as a child. I was powerfully impacted 
as an 11, 10-year-old coming out of the Hiroshima Museum, I was shaking like a leaf. I think I was a precocious nine-year-old who could tell you all about why nuclear weapons were bad, but it became visceral for me after meeting so many of the survivors, Hibakusha, so-called, and Konbate Kudasai, to all of those who live that powerful lesson, that crime against humanity that must never be repeated. And I understood very quickly the link between nuclear power, nuclear weapons in our backyards made no sense to me. I'm also a 14-year survivor of breast cancer with normal mammography today, having refused the recommended radiation and tamoxifen. I don't believe that for me personally, radiation offered any healing. I understood too clearly the health effects and the hazards from both the U.S. atomic veterans. I worked with some of the men who died of cancer as well as the Japanese survivors. And so it was a very clear, visceral link for me to connect to nuclear power in my backyard. I live within the 50-mile radius of a nuclear power station that was closed down one year ago. It's the same exact make, model, and age as the Fukushima reactors that are ongoing, spewing close to 100,000 gallons a day, I believe, of radioactive waste into the Pacific Ocean. Nonviolent action for me was a spiritual path, a pragmatic path. While I personally am convinced of this as a way of life, and to the best of my imperfect ability, it does guide my daily choices and has since as long as I can remember. However, I also work very closely with someone named Dr. Gene Sharp, who's one of the world's authorities on strategic nonviolent resistance. He became a mentor to me when I was only a teenager. I started hearing his name at age 13 because my father brought his work into print when he could not find a publisher, and Columbia Press told him his masterpiece, that's still a masterpiece 50 years later, was not publishable. The Politics of Nonviolent Action, my father was on fire as soon as he read it, and they worked for two years before they actually published it together. Gene has continued to be a mentor to me, and I... I'm extremely grateful for his profound lessons and wisdom. He was recognized, he's now a three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, a world's authority on strategic nonviolent resistance. Albert Einstein actually corresponded directly with Gene in 1953 when he told Gene that he hoped he would have the courage to take the stance that Gene had taken. Gene served nine months in prison during the Korean War rather than go to war. And Albert Einstein later wrote the introduction to Gene Sharp's first book on Gandhi, which was published actually after Einstein's death. Einstein understood and respected the power and the pragmatic value of nonviolent resistance. And Gene, he's devoted his entire life to documenting the nonviolent histories and nonviolent techniques, the methods, when and where has nonviolent history worked and not worked and why. Well, there's a whole lot more that I want to talk about that, Nelia. But first, I want to remind listeners that they're tuned in to Spirit in Action. If you're in Nelia's area of the country, you're hearing us perhaps on WOOL, Black Sheep Radio, right out of Bellows Falls, Vermont. And I think, Nelia, you're on the other side of the border by Unity, New Hampshire. Yes. But 
but there's stations all over the nation listening. There's KLOI out in Washington State, or there's WHYS right here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, down in Colorado, over in California, all over the nation. People are listening to Spirit in Action. And if you come to NortonSpiritRadio.org, you can find 10 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. You'll find WOOL. There's a link to their station on our site, but also to organizations like the Albert Einstein Institution, that Neelia Sargent is the chair of the board for the Albert Einstein Institute. But you'll also find links to clamshellalliance.net and many more good folks. Connect with all of our guests over the 10 and a half years of this program. You'll also find a place to post comments and we do ask that you post a comment when you visit because we love to hear your voice. We love to hear your feedback. So please post that comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. Click on Donate to make this program exist in the future. Without your support, we can't do it. Even more important, though, than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support those local community radio stations like WOL or WHYS. All these folks who have made it their mission to get alternative news and music out to the community. So find the community radio station in your area and start by supporting them. As I said earlier, we're speaking with Nelia Sargent, active in so many ways, from part of a three-generation pacifist family. Activism just seems to be in the genetic structure. So you were talking earlier, Nelia, about your activism with Clamshell Alliance, and nonviolent action seems to be an incredibly important part of being part of such a group. What is nonviolent action, and what does it mean to you and, and in your life? Nonviolent action has been central to my life and I believe is central to holding potential guidance for the future. Nonviolent action can be divided into three major categories. These are Gene Sharp definitions, protest, non-cooperation, and intervention. Gene Sharp, a long time ago in 1973, defined 198 methods and he's the first to state that this is not a complete list Please continue adding to his, this list. But those three categories of protest, non-cooperation, and intervention, we can define out of our own U.S. colonial history three examples. Protest included, for instance, the Boston Tea Party and many other campaigns. There's a wonderful work by some of Jean's students that documents how nine of the 13 colonies that effectively won their independence prior to the first violence at Lexington and Concord for the 10 years previous to the beginning of violence at Lexington and Concord, there are three major campaigns that effectively won our independence. But the Boston Tea Party is an example that most people are familiar with. So that's an example of the first category, protest. The second category of non-cooperation. The early colonists, to withdraw their consent, complicity, and cooperation with the authority of the King of England, King George III, refused the stamp tax. And that was a part of this nonviolent strategic application by colonists to assert their own independence. The third category of intervention, parallel illegal organizations, sometimes underground organizations to build civil society. The Continental Assembly was a parallel illegal form of government prior to the revolution after which it became the Continental Congress. So this is a part of our own heritage here in the United States, and I feel a particular affinity to that because of my own heritage here in New England. 
my forebears were involved in those resistance struggles. And nonviolent action, you've been involved in all phases of it. Uh, protests, certainly, we've heard with Clamshell. Could you draw from your experience, the stuff that you've seen been part of, some more examples, maybe more current than the Boston Tea Party? Yes, non-cooperation. There is a very small movement in this country of people who have withdrawn their complicity, cooperation, and consent with the use of our tax dollars for military purposes. I personally did not want to work full-time for peace and pay for war. So I became a war tax refuser at a fairly young age. In fact, as I was going into blindness, my own non-cooperation led me to withdraw my consent from the inheritance that I had inherited. My father and I, who I, I adored my father, he was a very powerful role model for me growing up, and we had a very close relationship. And about the only argument we ever, substantive argument that was ongoing for us was he wanted to leave me with some life insurance money. And it took him a week to gain my cooperation, to gain my signature for the life insurance policy check I was supposed to sign quarterly. And he understood that this was not a rejection of him personally. I made it very clear I wanted him, not his money. And he said, this is freely given. It's yours to do with as you so please. And I did indeed, after his death, I immediately put the money out in five-year loans because I was only 20 after all. I was just going into blindness. And I understood that this was insanity in conventional terms. But I did not want anything to do with the life insurance policy. I knew very little about economics, but I also knew that I had heard that life insurance money was based on some real estate investments and that I knew that real estate investments involved redlining, which discriminated against the people of color who would show up, who lived at our house and might be arrested because they were there. people of color did not belong in that section of Brookline in 1960 at certain hours of the day or night. And that kind of discrimination was deeply offensive to me, even as a youngster. And I understood what that meant in human terms. And so I decided to give away my inheritance as I was going into blindness. And eventually I gave away about a quarter million dollars as anonymously as I could manage. I was fairly naive, but as anonymously as I could figure out how I was donating this because I didn't want to be associated with the privileges of donating money. At the same time that I was trying to live below the poverty line. Now, I don't know what poverty is. It was for, always for me a choice. But I wanted to live simply so that others could simply live. And John Woolman's testimony of to try whether the seeds of war are contained within your clothing and possessions. This is a query written in the 1985 New England Friends Faith and Practice book that had great meaning to me. I went to Quaker school as a child, a Cambridge Friends school. And I'd grown up with Quaker influences, although I'm not a formal member of the Quakers. They have been a very strong influence on me throughout my life. And I've been very active with the American Friends Service Committee, as well as whichever meeting is closest to me, wherever I'm living in New England. And I wanted to live simply so that others may simply live in this non-cooperation with the economic injustices the impact on individuals that I understood, even as a child, was very important to me. While we're on the topic, let's talk some more. You said that in your family, that the objections, the pacifists that were part of your progenitors, that they did it for non-religious reasons. And during World War II, 
that was a very significant step to take. That's back when the nation was still so heavily religiously influenced. So in those times, it was actually easier for people like Quakers to take the stand than for non-religious people to assert their morality that they're exhibiting. Are there other religious influences that have come in? You went to a Quaker school, I understand that, but I detect a very wide-ranging spirituality in you. Yes, I do not consider myself a religious person, but I do consider myself deeply spiritual. In addition to Quakers, from the very beginning of life, I had exposure to Buddhist artifacts through my family that were all around me. And my mother was actually a founding member of the first Tibetan Buddhist center in Boston, I think in the United States. In 1970, the Dharma Datu, she was one of the co-founding members Also, I, of course, turned 11 in Japan. We lived briefly in Japan as a child, and we learned to speak Japanese, to mingle with the culture, and really experience the Japanese people whom I fell in love with. And then also, through these nonviolent actions and commitments, I was brought into a very privileged contact with Native American people and spirituality through action, and very deep friendships. One of my closest friends for 30 years, he's no longer with us, was actually the producer of Honoring Mother Earth, an internationally broadcast weekly radio program from Native Perspectives. He was a very close spirit brother to me, Onus Pritzker, and Slow Turtle, and many, many Native elders I've been very privileged to call as friends. And it's a tremendous gift to me, the, the wisdom of these elders. I also deeply admire John Trudell, whom I never met, but there's a beautiful program recently produced on TUC, Time of Useful Consciousness, TUC Radio, about John Trudell's life and work, who recently passed away. He was one of the leaders of the American Indian movement. I also should mention the Peace Pagodas. Nipponzan Myohoji is a Buddhist order that follows a chanting tradition, whom I consider extended family. I was privileged to walk with them the first time they arrived in the United States in 1976 on the Bicentennial Walk for Disarmament and Social Justice. I walked with them from Boston to Washington. I was one of the four through walkers who walked the entire route, the Boston branch. There was a transcontinental walk and a walk up from the deep south. And Kato Schoening, who was the monk who stayed on in New England, he was based largely from my parental home for the first two years after that walk, after which time land was donated. And then he, with others, built the first peace pagoda in the United States in the first of New England, it's north of Leverett, Mass. And the first woman who, who joined that order, the first American woman to join that order to shave her head and don the robes, was actually a former editor from our family's publishing house, Claire Carter. You certainly do have a wide amount of influence coming in from beautiful areas. Simplicity is one of the things that I note about your lifestyle. You said you try and live under what the federal government calls the poverty rate, and voluntary simplicity is something I've studied and been very interested in. How do you live it out in your life? Simplicity is a goal that I aspire to. I often joke that like Pinocchio, I speak of simplicity and my nose goes longer and longer. I think my life is anything but simple, but I do aspire to that. I think I often fail miserably at achieving that, but it remains a very powerful inspiration to me. I am no longer living completely below taxable levels of income. Well, no, that's not true. I I don't pay taxes. 
I donate half of my income now to charity. When I was donating my inheritance at the time of losing my sight, it was essential to redefine what did security mean to me. If I was not going to place my security in financial security, I think security is a fundamental human need, and I did not want to cooperate with the traditional economic definitions of security and what that was predicated on, the banksters and Wall Street and the injustices grossly perpetuated through the abuse and misuse of our tax dollars abroad as well as domestically. I mean, today we consume so much. For me, simplicity, learning to live simply so others may simply live has been a guiding principle for me throughout my life. We in the United States here, most of us, are above the global 1% of income. I think it's defined. I'm not an economist, and please double-check all my figures, but someone like Chuck Collins, who's been working on this throughout his entire life, I believe claims that $31,000 puts us in the 1% globally of, mm-hmm. of incomes. So for me, that involves an inherent injustice in the disproportionate rate of consumption of our resources on a finite planet, And this, for me, is a very important guiding principle. I was attempting to alter my lifestyles, boy, 40, 50 years ago. I I really, I'm only 60. (laughs) 40 years ago, I was attempting to alter my lifestyle towards some kind of global equity, whatever that means. Now, I'm not an economist, but it was clear to me that the rates and, and the abuse of resources that we take for granted and many people feel entitled to is not sustainable, and nor does it tie into any regenerative respect for self and the planet and the small earth that sustains us. My understanding is it takes multiple planets to sustain the dominant lifestyle here in the United States. And so I wanted to alter that. And so I redefine security as coming back to that root of simplicity and the goal towards simplicity, trying to live simply so that others may simply live, the way the fruit of that for me becomes developing cooperative living skills, living in community, sharing, and, well, like that old Yankee, I she's got everything she wants. She's just darn careful about what she wants. <laughs> our wants and our needs are two different, two vastly disproportionate measures. I shelter myself from some of the dominant media madness. You know, I've chosen to never live with a TV in the house, even when I was fully sighted. There were only three laws in my parents' household. No guns, no TV, no candy, and everything else was negotiable. But... And so I try to live simply so that others may simply live. And what does that mean? I don't know that I have any answers, but I think, for instance, this Quaker City Community Land Trust that I live on, I think none of us would ascertain that we have any answers. But we've been asking good questions for decades. And by asking hard, difficult questions, not being an ostrich with our head in the sand, but by asking those questions and by actively exploring experiments. Most experiments fail. And so it's essential now, and the time imperative to this with the climate disruption reports from scientific reports, you know, the, the climatologists and the, 
the scientific community and the scientific consensus on climate disruption. It's happening so much more rapidly. We're approaching or have reached already some of many tipping points. It's imperative that we explore very actively and aggressively with humility, respect for planet, respect for self. And I don't actually know which of these experiments will work, but I feel that by asking these questions, it leads to a far more fruitful life rooted in principles and grounded in principles. To the extent that we're able to ground the fruits of our daily life rooted in principles, I feel the more deeply satisfying a life is. And the Quaker City Land Trust, and you might want to explain what Quaker City is since there's not actually a city there called Quaker City. How does that change your living lightly on the earth? Quaker City grew up around, it's in a very rural section of New Hampshire in a very low-income town in a low-income county, very rural. It grew up around an 1820 Quaker meeting house. These were back to the landers in the mid-60s who wanted to try to live simply, who were committed to you know, extensive gardening, you know, not completely self-sufficient, but raising a good percentage of our food organically through our own labor. We share labor. Once a week, we actually take turns rotating to each other's leaseholds and doing whatever people want done, i.e. firewood, gardening, whatever work each person would like to prioritize for their leasehold. And we have twice a month monthly business meetings to talk about shared resources in the commons and community concerns. Most of us are interested in social justice and attempting to live relatively simply. These are people who were trying to change their lifestyle 40 years ago around the principles and the language that we now call climate disruption, trying to transition beyond peak oil and the consumptive patterns that have been so dominant in our society. Most people work through, well, I have some neighbors who are actually professional apple pickers and pruners for the last 40 years. They work in commercial orchards. They don't own their own orchard to avoid pesticide exposure, but they commercially have been pruning and picking, and they also grow over 12,000 pansies field-grown in New Hampshire with no greenhouse that are planted in the summer before for a harvest around Mother's Day the following year with no greenhouse. So in our Quaker City Community Land Trust, we each have independent housing, but we do share meals twice a month before our twice-a-month business meeting to talk about shared concerns and understanding use of the commons and so forth. We're a total of 11 at the moment, including two small children. Most of the children here have been homeschooled. In fact, one of the adult members who's now in her late 40s was homeschooled here as a child. She actually has been apple picking and pruning her entire life (laughs) and growing pansies and also manages the local, the Unity Transfer Station. We tend to live fairly independently, and yet we collaborate on a weekly basis. We share a half day of shared labor, and we actually bond through hard work together outdoors. We take turns going around to each other's leaseholds and doing whatever each person would like prioritized on their leasehold. It's often firewood or gardening. Uh, Sometimes it's building pansy boxes if it's a rainy day. (laughs) Whatever people would like done. It's their turn to direct the whole crew of people once a week when it's their turn on their leasehold. We haven't previously had animals. A year ago, a Hungarian family moved in, and they have actually goats and ducks that they're using for not only their own sustenance, but they're now beginning. They have 
surplus to share with people in this region. Sounds kind of idyllic. I imagine it's also hard work. So, you know, there's so many strands of your life and activism that we could trace. I am going to be speaking to folks related to the Albert Einstein Institution later. I mean, Gene Sharp, I saw him in the early 80s, and it's about time I got around to having him on Spirit in Action or the folks that he's groomed to follow up on that work. We could have talked to you about your time with Witness for Peace in Nicaragua. We could have talked to you about your work as a mediator and your activism with that. But we're not going to do any of that because I'm afraid that the time has wended its way out. So for all of your work, whether it's with simplicity or justice, nonviolent action, the inspirational fact that... uh, what people usually see as a limitation, blindness, hasn't stopped you from being so fruitful in your life. The fact that you chose to go to law school without being a lawyer and yet bring your expertise to all the work that you do, all of those things inspire me. And I'm so thankful that you take the time and so generously give your time to us to be with us here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. It's my pleasure, privilege, and honor to share just a little bit And I think for me, I am extremely grateful to how my life, through the remarkable training that I had upon losing my sight, how my life is literally walking testimony to what our taxes can do when we're not building bombs. I believe we have many options, many choices, many resources. And when we are grounded and rooted in our own principles, the fruits of our lives bear witness to what we truly most deeply believe in. And however imperfectly we express that, that search to attempt to live out our values brings for me the greatest fulfillment and the deepest satisfaction in living. Thanks so much for joining us for Spirit in Action. (laughs) Thank you. Again, we've been speaking with Nelia Sargent. I've got links to a number of the groups she's associated with, the Clamshell Alliance, Albert Einstein Institution, the work of Robert Amendola, and more on northernspiritradio.org. Visit, listen, download, post comments, and donate at northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.